This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning and welcome to New Books in German Studies. My name is Piotr Kosicki. I'm a history professor at the University of Maryland. My guest today is Professor Anna von der Goltz from Georgetown University. She teaches German and European history. Her research focuses on the political and cultural history of 20th century Germany. Most recently, her work has dealt with the post-war period, especially with political activism in the years around 1968. Today, we will be talking about her second monograph, which was published last year, 2021, by Oxford University Press. It's entitled The Other 68ers, Student Protest and Christian Democracy in West Germany. I should add, prior to coming to Georgetown, Anna von der Goltz was based in the United Kingdom. She held postdoctoral fellowships at Oxford and Cambridge. Her research on the Hindenburg myth, the subject of her first book, won the Wiener Library's Frankel Prize in Contemporary History in 2008. She is originally from Bremen, Germany, and now lives in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program, Anna. Thank you so much for having me, Piotr. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm going to go ahead and jump right into my first question. I usually start interviews by asking how the author came to a topic, but then I realized, of course, you've been working on the history of 1968 for a very long time, and I know uh, the Europe 1968 book. I don't know if you want to say a few words about that and promote it as well for our listeners here. I'm a great admirer of that co-authored volume. I'm just curious, uh, and you know, you can say as much or as little as you want to start for our listeners' benefit. Uh, when did you decide that you wanted to write a whole book about 1968, but to zoom in on Christian Democrats in West Germany? Yeah, so as you say, uh, it's been a while. <laughs> I first started thinking about this around 2007, eight, as I was finishing my first book, which, of course, dealt with the interwar period. And I was really keen to shift my temporal focus and to do something on the post-war. And I'd always been interested in the in the 1960s. Um, In some ways, um, since growing up, I grew up in a um, milieu that was very much shaped by the 60s, um, kind of a left-wing urban environment. My mum had been a student in the 1960s, not an activist, but sort of swept up in the general spirit of the times. Um, Most of my teachers in high school, most of my uh, friends' parents were sort of influenced by the 60s in one way or another. Um, and so I started reading sort of up on on the latest research on um, kind of the West German 60s and really noticed the striking absence of center-right figures and Christian Democrats um, more generally. And this struck me because obviously Christian Democrats had been and then later continued to be the most important political force in Germany post-45. And it just struck me that a central chapter of um, German history post-45 seemed to 
exclude them. And so I came up with the idea then, but was then sort of sidetracked by the project that eventually became Europe's 1968. Um, I just finished my doctoral work and sort of had the option of joining this this team as a postdoctoral fellow that was conducting interviews with um, people all across Europe. And I was eventually asked to do both German states and then spent quite a few years interviewing um left-wing activists from both German states and, you know, kept thinking about the centre-right but wasn't really um, doing the research at that point. But I think the methodology that we adopted in that book um, then left a mark on sort of my approach to studying Christian Democrats. Uh, I'd always been planning to do oral history, but it became a much bigger part of the project as a result. Um, And yeah, I ended up then combining kind of the archival side with the oral history methodology. And um, yeah, then basically decided to to turn my attention to to Christian Democrats um, and was quite struck uh, once I started looking for them um, that they just seemed to be everywhere. It just seemed to be that a lot of key protest events I'd read about in the literature actually had a significant um, a center-right component that we didn't really know anything about. And I just want to point listeners to um, the cover of the book, which I think in some ways exemplifies the overall approach. It shows a famous photograph of a debate held in Freiburg in January 1968 um, between Rudi Dutschke, the radical left-wing student leader, and uh, Ralf Dahrendorf, a leading liberal intellectual and politician at the time, the city on the roof of a car and it's a very famous photo that's often used to illustrate the sort of generational clash and the intellectual urgency of this period and the spontaneity Um, and I found out that the car they were sitting on was actually owned by a Christian democratic activist that Christian democratic activists had been kind of involved in organizing the whole event in the first place that were present throughout participated and were actually also shown in Um, pretty much every photograph taken of the event, including on the most famous one, which is the one that's also depicted on my cover. But they literally got cropped out of later reproductions, usually, or simply overlooked. And so I take this story to kind of um, um, talk about the general approach of the book, which is really about expanding the frame and writing Christian democratic activists back into the story. And I think it does sort of change how we uh, think about this period. I think the cover image is brilliantly chosen. I wanted to mention also just in general for the listener's benefit that the book is full of wonderfully chosen images. Uh, and we, I want to talk more about sources later on. But right now, I want to stick with the Christian Democratic label. Uh, I'll lay my cards out on the table. It's a, it's an area I'm interested in as well as a scholar. So I'm always curious how we define the uh, uh, concept, the movement, People and I wonder sometimes. And this is really just by way of of uh, exploring for a moment the title and subtitle of your book. So the relationship between the other sixty-eighters on the one hand and Christian democracy on the other hand. We can talk a lot more about Christian democracy more generally, but what did it mean to connect the two? In in other words, obviously you've written, as you said, a lot about the left before in Europe's 1968. Uh, what made Christian Democrats of all people the others? 
Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. And I have to say that I struggled with those labels um, quite a bit. Um, I did and, and, and still use in the book um, the term center-right quite a lot, um, which, you know, I think makes sense in English. It gets very tricky when you talk to German audiences then because center-right just doesn't really translate. And I would usually get pushed back there and people just said, why don't you just call them what they are? They are Christian Democrats, right? Um, I also played around with the conservative label a little bit, um, which is obviously tricky in a, in a German context where conservatism is just tainted by its associations with Nazism and even figures who are sort of conservative in a philosophical sense really don't want to be called that until uh, the 1970s, 1980s, when the term sort of gets revived. Um, and so I played around with, with different... Um, different labels and um, decided on putting Christian democracy in the sort of subtitle of the book, because I mean, in an organizational sense, most of the activists I deal with um, were members of the Christian Democratic student organization. So they have a relationship to the Christian Democratic um, parties, both of them, the student organization actually cut across the divide between the Bavarian Christian Social Union and um, the Christian Democrats. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think it makes sense from an organizational um, perspective to um, to call them that. And then quite a few of them also later shaped Christian Democratic Party politics in significant ways. And that's something I explored towards the end of the book. And so I wanted to make sure that uh, people who were interested in the history of the party and the history of Christian democracy took, took note, um, because otherwise I think it might have been a book that spoke primarily to people interested in the 60s as a concept and in student protests. And I sort of was trying to uh, to speak to both both fields. Well, part of the the trickiness with engaging Christian democracy, of course, is that it means many things in different countries in different eras, and that's why your book, among other reasons, is I think such an important intervention specifically for scholars interested in Christian democracy and or religion and politics in mid-20th century Europe, because this is a different kind of story. Uh, ideologically, if we talk about the 40s and 50s, and I mean, you, you reference this literature in your book copiously, at, talking about Catholic social teaching, personalism in the West German context, the social market economy, uh, a lot of your protagonists, I don't want to say everyone, but a lot of them seem, and you use the word flexible, actually, but very ideologically flexible. And that is quite striking. So I, I wanted to, to, to push a little bit. And obviously, you know, you did, you interviewed folks you were able to interview, but I'm curious in terms of choosing who would actually represent Christian democracy. Uh, were you led and guided by, well, I'll leave that open to you. By by what kind of approach uh, in in order to arrive at this eclectic and flexible group? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I think I started off not really um, thinking about who represented Christian democracy. I started off by looking at who on the center right spectrum turned up to do something about um, student unrest, either by opposing it, participating, trying to shape it. So I kind of looked at 
who the most active participants were, um, especially in the centers of uh, student protest. And what I quickly found was that the Christian Democratic Student Organization was, you know, often um, sort of at the forefront of trying to organize some kind of counter movement. Um, and then there were also the so-called student unions, which were these sort of umbrella groups that were set up as well. But even there was quite a lot of overlap with the Christian Democratic Student Organization. Um, and some of them were, you know, the national chairs of the association. So I tried to interview all of those in the period I was looking at. And then it was a matter of kind of snowball technique. People would point me towards other people who were sort of active around the same time. I did, you know, a lot of archival work, try to look up names, um, Trying to locate women who were active was amongst the hardest things. Um, and so, you know, I tried to find um, find those that sort of popped up in the in in the written sources. Um, but it was, you know, I wasn't going about it by saying, OK, there are these different wings of the Christian Democratic Party. Where am I going to find the representatives of you know, the social market economy wing and where am I going to find uh, uh, the sort of Protestant northerners, you know, that was not the approach. It was about activists who were part participating or opposing the student movement in some way. And I think that probably shaped, I mean, undoubtedly shaped um, the kind of story I ended up telling. It struck me toward the end of the book, you, you invoke uh, Wolf Schönbaum's uh, critique of, of Angela Merkel for not having a combative political style. Uh, is that what you mean by activist? Um, not necessarily, but I mean, in Schönbaum's case, uh, uh, that certainly uh, applies. I mean, activist, I think, is anyone who dedicates their life to to, to sort of politics in a, in a sustained uh, way. Um, and uh, in the 60s, it very often involved, um, you know, a confrontation of some sort. I mean, because the left was mobilizing to such an extent, it was really dominating um, just life on campus and political debates on campus, um, confronting them became sort of a big part. And I think um, people like Wolf Schönbaum um, have always stressed that it, it really shaped their political style long term, that they just got used to debating, to theorizing, which is, of course, not something that... Um, Christian democratic students, you know, were necessarily all that comfortable with before or was sort of part of that, you know, political identity necessarily. Um, yeah, and he, you know, I included that story because I write quite a lot about their social and cultural liberalism in some way. Um, and that may make one expect that Merkel is sort of the logical progression. And in some ways, you know, there's a certain overlap, I think, between the way in which she moved the Christian Democrats to the center on some issues um, and the politics of, of the other 68ers, especially in the sort of um, 80s. But stylistically, it, it was very, very different. And um, quite a few of them, and Schönbaum was probably the most um, vocal proponent, really criticized her for uh, not taking on um, her political opponents in a more forceful manner. And, you know, Schönbaum connected that to her political socialization and contrasted that with his own, which was all about 
turning up and having um, sort of big arguments about the direction of the country and being quite polemical as well. Well, it, it strikes me one of the big arguments that was shared by a lot of your protagonists had to do, I mean, here again, we have a, a distinction from Merkel, which Shinbum clearly was aware of when he was uh, making that characterization is anti-communism. Uh, and of all the, let's say, ideological flexibility, the least flexibility, except for the, the folks you call renegades who ended up abandoning the Christian democratic activist movements, came with opposition to uh, not just the Soviet Union, but more generally transnational communism. So I'm, I actually wanted to ask you uh, in a kind of, this may be a, less a question about ideology and more about experience. How much would you blame their childhoods? Uh, you talk about uh, childhoods. Of course, everybody had a different childhood, but there are recurring themes, being orphaned in the war, surviving bombings, becoming an expellee, etc., as organically breeding a sort of ideological bent toward anti-communism. Is that fair as a generalization? And if so, when did it expire? Because it doesn't seem like that really shaped everybody for the rest of the duration of the of the Cold War era republic. Yeah, and I am actually very skeptical about arguments about um, childhoods, uh, childhood experiencing uh, experiences shaping people's politics uh, long term. And I think I, I sort of write against that uh, assumption quite explicitly because the childhoods of, of my protagonists. Um, weren't all that different from the childhoods of uh, many left-wing students who also experienced bombing, the expulsions, uh, flight, uh, and so forth, and certainly an anti-communist climate around them. Um, and the argument is often made that that turned them into <laughs> left-wing student radicals, right? Um, which I think also doesn't hold up. I think there's no causal link between these kinds of childhood experiences and um and uh, people's politics later on. I think the family uh, political socialization played a big role. I mean, I was really struck by the fact that uh, not a single person I talked to came from a left-wing parental home. They basically all came from um, fairly conservative um, households and, and, and often you know, had parents who um, voted um, for the Christian Democrats as well. So they're continuing family political traditions. And the same was true on the left. So I think that's actually the main difference between activists from, from different camps, as it were. But they draw on specific childhood experiences to make sense of their politics. So they connect their own politics in very direct ways to, say, experiences with um, Soviet repression or those who had spent some years in East Germany, some of them had, and then later fled to the West. Um, they, you know, say it was the communist indoctrination in school that turned me into an anti-communist. I'm not saying there's a causal link. I'm saying it shapes how they make sense of their own politics. So it's more about their own subjectivity and the way that they explain what they're doing um, at the time. But I don't think it's a it's sort of a linear um, a linear story that propels them forward in a sort of path-dependent way, as it were. Well, I'm glad you brought up subjectivity because, and I'm, I'm going to switch gears for just a second here to just mm -hmm. to, to, to 
to say again for our readers, or excuse me, our listeners' benefit, that one of the things that I found most impressive, again and again reading your book, is how elegantly you combine the toolkits of different disciplines. That the book is very much ethnography, down to the comments you make about where your interview subjects lived and if their spouses were serving you tea during your interviews, etc. cetera, uh, with uh, movement sociology, with the, this kind of well, collective biography in some sense, uh, and of course also a more classical uh, political history. In the introduction, you say that this is a cultural history of politics, and of course there's a lot that fits under that umbrella. I'm curious if having written the book and sent it out into the world, uh, you think that that label is the label you want? Um, the cultural history of politics? Yeah, I think I'm quite comfortable with it. Um, I think that if I went back and did it all again, I might actually do more with some of the intersubjectivity. I think I was always quite reluctant to put myself into the story. Um, but I always get a lot of questions about that aspect of it. And I think that's something I could have done more with potentially. Um, but otherwise, I think I'm quite, quite happy with the overall umbrella. Um, I mean, what would be some of the uh, alternative uh, umbrellas you have in mind for it? I actually think it works perfectly. You know, obviously, you do a critical history of the concept and lived reality of generations. Uh, and I want to talk about that as well. But just for a moment in terms of the cultural history of politics, the reason I, I flagged the word subjectivity is that you especially in the final pages of the book, you talk about memory entrepreneurship. I remember that phrase. It stuck out at me. But really, in some sense, at every stage of the story, there is memory entrepreneurship at play, whether it's repackaging the 45ers or repackaging the Third Reich or repackaging the Cold War division, the Oder Nissa line, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's somewhat what I had in mind in the sense that Broadly, cultural history of politics can contain, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, a history of memory entrepreneurship. But by the same token, I'm just curious if you feel like looking at the individual lives, constructing a picture, a collective portrait of this um, political biography, sociology over time. What was the relationship, if you will, let me put it this way, between how memory was crafted and how intersubjectivity, uh, whether conscious or less so perhaps, uh, was uh, deployed, weaponized, <laughs> used as a political tool, and the kind of experiences that you really put front and center, especially early on in the book, of confrontation versus revolutionary left and center right? Hmm, that's a, a great question. Um, I think the short answer is it was a very complex relationship. Um, and it makes no sense to try and disentangle, you know, the real history from the subjective experience or the, you know, the, the things that people were sort of telling themselves about what they were doing. And I think this is a general hallmark of the period that the 60s were about 
competing interpretations and debates and arguments about what events meant um, at the time already, right? I mean, people on the left were always also trying to figure out what it all meant and, and writing about it and analyzing themselves and crafting interpretations while things were happening. And, um, and you know, the center-right is also operating in this climate and, 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 and making sense of its own role, you know, partly in generational terms. I mean, they start talking about themselves as something of a counter generation or, you know, a different generation unit already in 1968. So they are also making sense of their own role by employing these um, uh, kind of categories from the social sciences and, of course, one could just say, oh, that's just a political argument. You know, it's not really. It's just a story they're telling. But that then in turn influences what they're doing, how they're making sense of themselves. It shapes action. Um, and, you know, so I try and kind of tell the quote unquote real history of what these activists are up to and the kinds of positions they're advocating, the events they're taking part in alongside the evolution of this sort of narrative or these competing narratives about what they're doing. And that really changes over time. Um, I think the confrontation and the combativeness is actually not the central element in the beginning. In the beginning, it's much more about participation, cooperation. Um, I was really struck by the extent to which um, Christian Democrats really, you know, just were part of a lot of the key protest events in the beginning, um, be it against the rise in fare increases in public transportation or for educational reform. You know, they're very much uh, part of the mix and are, are often uh, at the same demonstrations as, as, as people on the left. Uh, the combativeness, I think, you know, with a dissolution of the left-wing student movement and sort of increasing fragmentation and, you know, one might say radicalization, the fronts really harden. So I think the combativeness is much more central in the 1970s, uh, really after 69. Also at this point, the Christian Democrats are in opposition at the federal level for the first time in the history of the Federal Republic. They're really traumatized. They think, you know, the election's been stolen from them. I mean, uh, some of that may sound familiar. Um, and uh, and that shapes their politics as well. So I think combativeness is, is very much um, the central way of making sense of what they're doing in the 1970s. And there's also an interesting difference in terms of sort of micro co cohorts. Um, Christian Democrats who were active in the 70s also tell stories that center much more on confrontation and on violence, actually, um, than the ones uh, who were active in the, say, in the mid-1960s, where it's much more about a joint, joint uprising of sorts. Um, so there are these subtle differences um, as well. It strikes me that the, I mean. Thank you for all of the, all of the details. I think that the intersubjectivities that you've just been exemplifying. Uh, my favorite, I, I confess. I mean, I I love the book, but my favorite chapter title is between Adnau and Coca Cola, and in some ways, this idea of bridging different subjectivities is, I think, maybe this captures so much of what you've done in the book. 
And I wonder if you might reflect a little bit on that pairing for our listeners, and particularly because, of course, Adenauer was dead by the time that most of your story plays out. He died in 67. And uh, the, the, you, you explicitly note at several points in the book that Adenauer's electoral dictum, no experiments, uh, was quite a turnoff for many of your protagonists. And yet he was the icon, so to speak, uh, of uh, not just a good statesman, but a meaningful figure in, in German political life. So I'm curious, you consider on the one hand, um, where the these, these uh, other 68ers were coming from in terms of their political reconstruction and how they understood where they were situating themselves in an existing movement and where they wanted to take it. Uh, why Coca-Cola alongside Adenauer? And why did Adenauer still figure in at all? Well, um, so in some ways I'm playing with, you know, a slogan that we know from studies of um, um, kind of left-wing youth culture in the 60s, um, the famous dictum about this as the generation uh, of Marx and Coca-Cola that is able to combine um, Marxist politics with consumer culture. And I was trying to get at something similar um, on the Christian democratic side where um, consumer culture and, you know, the just changing social mores, all of that um, certainly also uh, arrived in, in, in these uh, circles with, with full force and shaped uh, personal relationships, private behavior and so forth. Um, music taste, uh, fashion styles, all of that. Um, and yet there's still a, a great admiration for, you know, the, the figure that they um, think was the greatest German statesman of the 20th century. And while they, you know, reject the no experiments um, and some of the, the sort of um, somewhat sclerotic uh, structures maybe of the late Adenauer state, they also think that especially the early Adenauer and uh, a lot of the visionary um, politics, um, be it Western integration, you know, also social market economy, all of those things are sort of forward-looking projects. And they think that in some ways Christian Democrats have have gone off course um, since since the sort of heyday of of, uh, the Adenauer years. And... um, so he remains a reference point, and uh, he, you know, is shown on their magazines and so forth, and they, you know, often often invoke him, um, be it in later writings, but also in the period. And so I was trying to capture this, yeah, this dichotomy between, you know, a figure that we associate very much with the Federal Republic of the 1950s and a certain social conservatism as well, um, and... Um, consumer culture and, and kind of social and cultural change, which is, of course, you know, a hallmark of the 60s. Thanks very much. Uh, if I can ask you just, obviously this is not Coca-Cola, but I think it tilts more toward that part of the conversation. Uh, one of, and you're quite explicit about this, one of, I think, the main goals uh, and this really, I don't want to overgeneralize too much, but I just want to name a few things uh, connected to this goal that you stated was to demasculinize the story, if I read it right, uh, of the Christian Democratic 68 in West Germany. And 
obviously stances on birth control versus abortion versus second wave feminism were very different. These are very different elements of a larger cultural landscape, but they all meant something and they've all largely been silenced in the context of those subjectivities that we were talking about before. I'm curious if you could just say a few words on how important they were to the story as it was happening and as it was memorialized. Yeah, so I think there's quite a discrepancy between how important it was at the time and the role that it has played in the specific kind of memorialization that former Christian democratic activists have been um, involved in. Um, So the commemoration of the other 68ers has been extremely male-dominated. They've hosted quite a few so-called veterans meetings, you know, they use this very martial language of, uh, of, of, of warfare essentially against the left and, and these kinds of commemorations, they built on, you know, some of the subjectivities I was talking about earlier, conceiving of themselves as a, as a generation in the making already in the sixties, but they really take effect in the 1980s when the first big, of these veterans meetings is held and then continue really into the present. Um, uh, Every 10 years, um, people meet, but also in between. Um, And the vast majority of those who are involved um, in these endeavors are men. It's a very, very male network. And as I said, the stories are also about about combat. Um, At the time though, I mean, women activists were very much in the minority. Um, some groups did have female heads though. So the Bavarian um, Christian Democratic Student Organization was actually headed by a woman, Ursula Mendle, in the late 1960s. She was probably the most prominent um, person because she headed one of these these state groups. Um, And I was really struck by by how how different her yeah her subjectivity was how different the story was she told me she in some ways highlighted things that were similar to her male peers it was also a story of sort of confrontation with the left in some ways um, she also did a lot of theorizing she ran sort of uh, debating clubs where she taught um, young Christian Democrats how to counter arguments based on Marxist theory and so forth so she did a lot of the same things but then she was also very interested in uh, second wave feminism she was a sociology student um, she started writing articles calling out the misogyny of some of her male male peers um, in language that was very clearly uh, uh, sort of inspired by critiques of beauty pageants, um, you know, that American and British feminists were engaged in in this time. Um, And, you know, she read de Beauvoir. There was a lot of Simone de Beauvoir in in, in in Christian democratic magazines that I was really struck by, like a very constructivist reading of gender roles and also some yeah, very subjective stories about what some of these insights meant for personal relationships, for, um, um, yeah, for trying to find a partner in a milieu that didn't really um, seem to prize strong, strong women with, you know, independent career plans and so forth. And so I was really struck by by how far and how quickly these kinds of critiques actually entered 
Christian democratic student politics. I mean, really already in 69, which is, you know, I mean, that's the beginning of, of, of second wave feminism still. Um, um, you get these sort of critiques of patriarchy and, uh, and so forth. And so I think that's a story that in some ways we still need to excavate further um, and also the, the trajectories of some of this, because I do think there's something of a, a direct line to the 1980s when the Christian Democrats are also trying to um, engage women and uh, sort of have these surprising overlaps with uh, the Green Party and uh, the kind of motherhood wing of, of, of the Green Party. There's some interesting linkages there that I think um, warrant further exploration. I, it strikes me, the point you were just making and what you said earlier about the fact that already in the late 60s, after all, we're talking about students and a number of these people did have academic careers, uh, there was knowledge production already in progress about the constituting of the generation of uh, <laughs> of 68. And I'm thinking, of course, of generations more generally. You have this wonderful uh, discussion in your introduction of Karl Mannheim's theory and its uses and abuses, so to speak, uh, throughout historical analysis of generations and change in the 20th century. And uh, the point about gender is, I, th I think, one of the crucial points you bring up. I'm just curious, if, going directly from what we were just discussing, if you feel like the experience of women or the absence of women among the other 68ers can maybe offer a broader lesson about uh, how scholars can think about this kind of generational analysis. Yes, yes. I, I, I think... Um... I think women are really, or just the inclusion of, of, of gender is really, really crucial here because, um, I mean, I was quite drawn to Mannheim's model at first because it seemed to apply so perfectly so what, to what I was trying to do, right? Because he distinguishes between um, different generation units as part of the same generational context. So it would have been easy to say, well, you know, they're all students. This is the sort of generation context. And then there are these different units and they are antagonistic. They sort of gain their sense of self from opposing the other side. Um, and, you know, you could almost take that section where he writes about the generation unit and just say, okay, this is, you know, the other 68ers, the, the, the activists in the Christian Democratic Student Organization are the sort of counter unit. And that's really how I started out. I think some of um, your protagonists did that, right, themselves. Yes. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, and I never really found concrete evidence that they were reading Mannheim, but they, you know, many of them were political science and sociology students and had some of, you know, some were taught by, by people who'd been taught by Mannheim. And so I think those, uh, tr or that transmission is, 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 is quite clear. Um, but yeah, so I think the women don't fit into that binary model at all because they have this experiential overlap with women of the left um, and they also make sense of what a lot of it meant in different ways and they don't get involved in the later storytelling in the same way and so they are actually and in the chapter where I talk about women's experiences I do use that to critique the sort of you know, very binary way um, of just sort of applying Mannheim's model of the antagonistic units. And I say, well, actually, these things are a lot more fluid 
if we if we include gender. I think um, also, you know, the, the point I made earlier about childhoods, Mannheim was also very much a product of his time in the sense that, you know, he thought it's the experiences people have in youth that shape them long term. And there's a certain path dependency in his model where people are trapped in their own experiences, as it were, and they don't really change much later on. They still, you know, everything is always in relationship to this deeply anchored biographical starting point. And I think, you know, our understanding of uh, psychology and especially child psychology has really moved on since then. And um, I think, you know, this direct causal link between a certain age and a person's identity, also the very notion that an identity remains completely stable throughout an individual's life, um, I don't think, you know, we really believe that anymore. And so I think Mannheim is still useful, but more in terms of um, guiding one's research. And then, it, you know, it has to be about sort of taking the bits and pieces from that model that makes sense, but also um, 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 critiquing, I think, his, his, his approach uh, when necessary. And to me, yeah, I think gender is one of the most forceful ways of or most important ways of doing that. So one other force that you bring into the conversation, I think you use the verb generationalizing to talk about the role that the press played at various stages of your story. And if, I mean, chapter one, one of the the uh, the boogeymen, so to speak, of that chapter is the Springer <laughs> media empire. But it, the story doesn't stop there. And in some sense, during the 1980s, a lot of what you described as the martial uh, discourse and overtones of commemorations of 68, at least as I read it toward the end of your book, were really reinforced by press. So I wondered if you could reflect for a minute on uh, maybe public sphere isn't quite the right idea, but I'm curious what you think the role to be played by uh, the sort of echo chambers or to some extent, you know, obviously the intellectuals you were tracing had agency in this. They did the writing, they spread the words, in some cases they edited or published. Uh, how do we think of the, how accounts traveled in order to shape the identity of the generation? Yeah, so I think it goes back to something I said earlier about um, the impossibility of trying to disentangle the real from the fictional when it comes to the 60s, but especially to this idea of generation. Generations aren't just out there, right? They have to be actively constructed. I mean, they have to be made because people have to identify with them uh, in order to kind of, you know, uh, uh, think of themselves as part of a generation. Um, and so um, that requires storytelling, and, you know, partly requires people talking to each other about the fact that they have these shared experiences, which are based on age specific things. But it also requires um, others to then write about them. And of course, generational discourse is everywhere in the 1960s. Um, newspapers, television, music. I mean, the who's um, talking about my generation, of course, was a big hit at the time. Um, so it, um, you know, the media writing about protests, about activism in terms of generations also means that, um, you know, people at the time, including activists of the centre-right, had this sort of, um, this model, this concept um, sort of offered to them in a way by the media, and they then take it up, which then in turn gets taken up 
by the media, which develops it further. And I think without that interplay of um, a kind of public conversation, also a scholarly conversation, of course, you know, sociologists were also writing endless studies and conducting polls, which then Spiegel, I mean, if you read Der Spiegel at, at that time, I mean, every few months, there's sort of a big story about student opinion, um, which, you know, is based on this um, sociological data. Um, and so it's, you know, it's all connected. And I think these different um, different approaches, they sort of feed off each other and then shape um, subjectivities uh, long term. And there's also a relational dimension to it, um, which I think is completely lost if we only focus on students of the left, because the left actually also only starts thinking of them, themselves as the 68 generation because of outside stimuli. You know, I mean, in the 60s, they often reject the label because they think it undermines their revolutionary politics and just sort of you know, emphasizes their youthful exuberance and it means they're not being taken seriously. And they only really turn to generation once the movement is discredited in the late 1970s. And, you know, big reason for that is, you know, the terror of the Red Army faction and so forth. Um, and so all of a sudden generation becomes attractive. Um, and then it really takes off in the 1980s when the Christian Democrats are back in power. And there seems to be Christian democratic hegemony and they're trying to make sense of their life stories and they're saying, well, clearly politically we've lost. But there's this cultural revolution <laughs> that we instigated and that becomes the success narrative, as it were, of the left. And so it also happens in response to, you know, what conservatives are doing, what the media are doing. Um, and, um, you know, the people I wrote about also become extremely conscious of themselves in the 1980s. Um, and it is in response to commemorations on the left um, and in response to left-wing journalists starting to write about them <laughs> in the 1980s. And so, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all connected and there's a relational dimension to how these narratives emerge and evolve and they are very sort of context bound and what I was trying to do at these different stages is to sort of yeah to show that relationship and that interplay um yeah that was that was the idea uh, I, if I can stick with the relationality for a second uh, I, I enjoyed very much the discussion of international mental maps uh, because it took us to far-flung places. Obviously, the U.S. and the Soviet Union are easy, and to some extent, the war in Vietnam was a given, as was the Prague Spring. Chile is complicated, and Chile is definitely complicated. I know this from my own research uh, within the CDU because there were such different reactions among West German uh, political figures, but I think more generally within West German society after the coup against Allende. So what I wanted to ask you, I actually have two different questions about the international mental maps. The first one is if you feel like you can sort of mm, conceive of a cultural geography uh, 
how the 68ers saw what mattered in different parts of the world. Was it really at the end of the day Vietnam that drove them? Or do you feel like you discovered a few other reference points that have really been missing from the conversation? And then the second, I noticed that really there wasn't much about Israel, uh, which is striking given, well, a lot of things, uh, obviously the, the legacy of the Third Reich, but also the fact that the our Christian democratic student activists were actually quite involved in promoting uh, bilateral relations between the Federal Republic and Israel. And I think you mentioned at one point they organized counter demonstrations when there were protests against events they had organized for the Israeli ambassador. So I'm just curious if this is a function of the accounts that you heard, or if really Israel did fade into the background as the generation of 68 took shape on the center-right? Yeah, I'll start with the second question. Um, There isn't, I mean, it's not just the accounts, it's also the archives I consulted where you know, I looked at all the folders on kind of international connections and so forth, and Israel wasn't nearly as prominent as um, one might expect. I mean, there are these uh, visits. I think I mentioned one of them of of, of students visiting Israel and and even meeting with Ben-Gurion already, um, you know, in the 60s. But only the men. (laughs) Only the men. Exactly, exactly. It's one of the stories Ursula Menle tells to uh, highlight the misogyny. Um, And... uh, yeah, and, and there are these counter-demonstrations or demonstrations in support of the Israeli ambassador. Um, but I didn't get the sense that it was a sort of big animating theme. I think it becomes a theme because the left, you know, turns towards um, support for Palestine and um, demonstrations against the Israeli ambassador are sort of an obvious way of pointing out um, the kind of moral lapses of the left, as it were. But but I think these are essentially also substitute debates over the salience of the Nazi past in a way. I didn't get the sense that Israel was sort of a, a really important major point on the, or space on the, on the mental map, as it were, if I had to say where, where the the focus was, I would say actually Europe is the key category. And I think this is um, something that also goes against the grain of some of the recent scholarship on the 60s, which has really sort of highlighted the European 60s. And, you know, I've been involved in some of that. Um, But Europe, for people on the left in Western Europe just wasn't really that important. I mean, it was about the global South. It was about critiquing the US and forging alliances with, um, you know, dissidents in the US. Um, But it was largely about overcoming the Cold War binary and really thinking about the North-South division. And it was about the decolonized world and about, you know, about about Cuba, Um, but not about Europe. And for activists of the center-right, I do think European division does remain really central to just how they view the world. They think a lot more about German division. They talk about the Berlin Wall a lot. Um, They talk about, you know, human rights abuses in the Eastern Bloc quite a lot. Um, 
And in some ways, you know, the later um, sort of human rights activism, you know, fits very well with their politics. I mean, that's also something that I try, try to outline here. And so I think Europe is really a central place on the mental map. Um, yeah, and then there are these other, I mean, obviously Vietnam plays a role. They support the Vietnam War. Um, they try to link up even with South Vietnamese students at some point. Um, and then places like Chile, which, yes, Franz Josef Strauss, you know, famously uh, um, uh, sort of uh, visits and, and, and so forth and is uh, sort of supportive of, of Pinochet. But I was really struck by this um, activism for, you know, imprisoned Christian Democrats and um, the um, continued sort of reverence for, for Frey, the, uh, the former Chilean leader, pre-coup leader, and the critique of Allende that they, that they advance. And so, um, yeah, so it's a different kind of internationalism. Um, and as I say, um, in, in that specific chapter and also a little bit later in the book. I mean, in some ways, I think it's the version of internationalism that wins out in the long run. Um, certainly post-89, I mean, if we look at the world that uh, was created then, partly by some of the figures that uh, I write about, it looks much more like the world that they were dreaming up in the late 60s, you know, Europe undivided and uh, uh, and so forth. And um, um, uh, a Latin America that's not uh, run by, um, by, by democratic socialists and so forth. And uh, yeah, and I think the revolutionary politics of the left, you know, were defeated most clearly in some ways in the international realm. Um, and yet we try and always sort of see these connections between 68 and 89 on the left. And I think in some ways, you know, that works for Eastern Europe. But I think actually for the Western European left, it's, it's much more, much more complicated. It's so striking. You know, as you're talking, I was thinking about, of course, the fact that in some so many ways, uh, the European horizons of Christian democracy are definitive for the generations preceding the ones that you're talking about uh, in your book. And I'm okay, so the global horizons are there. I, in my own work, I've, I've looked at how the emerging Adenau Stiftung was looking to Chile and looking to Venezuela, and it was doing a lot. Uh, throughout the exact period that you're describing. But by the same token, uh, transnationalism among 68ers and the other 68ers idea, I was asking myself, did the West Germans see counterparts in France, uh, in uh, Belgium? And I mean, across the Iron Curtain, of course, is dicey uh, if we're talking about outside the GDR, but but Poland is an interesting case, right? And that's another one of the, this this transnational dimension strikes me as another one of those stories that can come back in consequent iterations uh, through the subjectivities of the participants. And how in the 1980s would uh, the center-right versus the left be thinking about Adam Michnik and other former Polish 68ers who were pl- prominent in the Solidarity Movement? who in France had great interlocutors, even though the Soissons Tritard in 1968 really were not on the same page at all with the Polish uh, 68ers. So obviously I've spoken about what was to the West and what was to the East. Did the West German other 68ers care uh, 
if I can put it that way. Yeah, I think they did care. They actually cared quite a bit about, I mean, maybe less about um, solidarity, um, but they really cared about um, the East German opposition and, you know, a figure like like Havemann and Baro, I mean, they write about them um, quite a bit in the in the 70s and actually their sort of center-right student magazines on the whole cover, I think, Eastern European um, reformism to a surprisingly large degree in the late 1960s. And so um, I was struck that a lot of the, the, the examples I was familiar with from some of the literature later produced uh, already pops up, a lot of the themes already pop up in uh, center-right student magazines at the time. Um, and in the 1980s, I mean... I think that, you know, because they don't turn against under coal, they don't turn against Ostpolitik, they actually continue um, uh, that tradition um, pretty much. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of these sort of early ideas feed qu- quite seamlessly into, into the politics of the 1980s. But I think because you asked about subjectivity, I think this you know, the ways in which many activists on the left conceived of themselves as transnational figures, even though they wouldn't have used that word, but sort of the internationalism of the time is is, is very much part of the identity and the, the traveling and the kind of toing and froing, um, uh, often spontaneous or based on personal relationships. Um, I think it shaped people um, to a very large degree. And I think that is more rare on the centre-right, even though they did travel, but a lot of the contacts they had to other European groups, and those were extensive, not so much to France, but very much to the UK, um, Belgium, the Netherlands, and also the Scandinavian countries actually were very important. So the Swedes were um, an important um, uh, ally, as it were. Um, But most of those were based in sort of official inter-party youth contacts and it's these sort of official conferences and then it's private travel but it's not really sort of political slash personal travel so much and so I think as a self-conception um the 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 transnational activist is um well that's not how uh many on the center center right would have described themselves um, they would talk about, you know, a sort of natural European mindset and those who, say, studied in Freiburg were always saying, well, we were always in France and crossing the border. But it's not as explicitly connected, I think, to their politics with, you know, with a few exceptions. But um, but it's less of a prominent story, I would say. Well, clearly this was a time, and I know, again, we started with ideological flexibility among this generation, but the 1960s and especially the late 60s were a time just after the Second Vatican Council with Christian trade unions deconfessionalizing across Western Europe of intense transformation and in some sense de-ideologization of transnational Christian democracy. Uh, And I, that 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 makes me wonder. I mean, on the one hand, of course, it's impossible in the story you tell to decouple Christian democracy from the idea of the other 68ers. We know that 
transnational Christian democracy remained a force, even as it shifted uh, into the 70s and 80s. But I'm curious if you feel like the concept of other 68ers can migrate uh, uh, horizontally or whatever direction you want to choose uh, within within Western Europe? Uh, or is it really a West German phenomenon? No, I think it can migrate. I'm um, currently writing a comparative piece with a colleague in Britain um, who's writing about the Federation of Conservative Students in Britain. And while 68 isn't such a powerful political label, so they wouldn't necessarily call themselves, you know, the other 68ers, but I think actually their politics and self-identification and many of their experiences are remarkably similar. Um with some, you know, obviously some differences. Um, interestingly, the European focus is even stronger in the British case, I think, because Europe is still more of a problem, right? And uh, and wanting to join uh, the European community is such a, an explicit project at the time. And so the West Germans, in a way, didn't have to even emphasize their European outlook as much because it was a given, it was uncontroversial. And for the Brits, it's really the animating theme. So it's a very, very interesting story, especially given the trajectory of the, the Conservative Party and its kind of opposition to to Europe in the long term. Um, but there, I mean, we have found that that actually it's 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 very easy to do this comparatively and transnationally. Um, and we're also involved in a in a project with a, a number of scholars working on the Scandinavian countries and I think there's, you know, quite a lot of overlap. And I think even though the politics are different in the French case, um, because student activism and the 68 label and the generational discourse is so strong in France, um, you know, I think this could, you know, probably be done. A similar book could be written about about French French activists. Although I think the phrase Christian democracy wouldn't carry the yes, same purpose. Yes, wouldn't carry. No, exactly. And, and exactly. actually, there, there I want to I want to push you a little bit when it comes to I think it comes uh, one of your protagonists says the sea, right? <laughs> quite quite bluntly, he's talking about sexual ethics, uh, and that's part of uh, the the story that to which I'm alluding right now. But but it did matter to the other six theaters to be Christian Democrats and. In spite of everything that was going on and their various hangups and disagreements, the the C, the Christian label still mattered. So I'm curious, since you really do take your story certainly up until uh, the end of the 1980s, but really arguably up until the present day, uh, what you feel has happened, courtesy of your other 68ers to the sea in in Christian democracy, at least in the in the in the f- context of the federal republic. So, I think that the sea really retreats from view in this period, and even though my protagonists are all, you know, many of them had been socialized in confessional schools. Um, They pretty much all came from families where um, uh, religion played some some role. Um, And yet the ways in which it shaped their politics, I think it's it's really more in the background. Um, I think the, and especially when it comes to 
kind of social and cultural issues. I mean, especially um, sex before marriage, um, um, even even abortion, um, and you know the the contraceptive pill. All of that. I think they are, um, you know, fairly fairly liberal, as it were. Um, and this is not just based on my interviews. I mean, there were also these studies at the time done by sexologists and so forth that find that that Catholic students, on the whole, um, even you know, even in those circles, there's actually a surprisingly uh, large acceptance for um, many of the the changes of of the period. And so I think it stops. It doesn't stop mattering, but it certainly stops shaping people's. Um, sort of behavior in that regard and social mores and so forth. I think in terms of politics, um, the most obvious way in which it continues to play a role is in the human rights activism. I mean, I do think there's a very strong um, like Christian slash Christian democratic imprint on the particular kind of human rights activism that they advocate and not just because they also you know, demonstrate against the suppression of religion in, in, in the Eastern Bloc, for instance. Um, but it is really then sort of personalism. And, and I mean, all of the stuff, obviously, Sam Moy and others have written about this, and you know the story much better than I do. But um, I think, you know, that feeds into um, their human rights activism in, in, in very direct ways. Um, but you know, the, these intense debates in the 1970s when the Christian Democrats are revising their, their uh, basic program for the first time in a long time. And um, they, they always say, you know, what are we going to do about the sea? And the sea is always sort of an issue. And there's a sense that at a time of uh, sort of silent value change, are we putting off voters by making the sea so central? And what does it mean? And so forth. And they... I think in the end, um, sort of settle on these relatively vague formulations about um, uh, a certain kind of ethics and responsibility that uh, is sort of based on the sea. But I would say that the people I portray in the book, um, if anything, are a reflection of um, the, yeah, the... Not, not, not the end of, uh, I mean, obviously it's still a Christian democratic party, but the slow sort of retreat from view, as it were, um, and the much less explicitly um, Christian um, element here is what I'd, what I'd say. Thank you. So th this may sound like a simplistic question, what I'm going to ask, but I have to ask it nonetheless. Uh, namely, uh, given that obviously, as you've said from the beginning, your other 68 protagonists were activists and that they were politically engaged from the beginning. That was one of their constitutive features. Do you feel like the story you've told is a story of failure? And I say this, among other things, because Helmut Kohl kind of is a hopeful horizon line throughout much of the book. And then, of course, toward the end of the book, he turns into this bête noire when he purges all the other 68ers. And that generation doesn't get its own chancellor. So how would you assess how things turned out in terms of their own goals? 
Yes, um, that's a, a, a great observation. Um, yes, I think in some ways it's a story of failure in the sense that they didn't really produce any of the the leading lights of Christian democratic politics. I mean, some, you know, I mean, definitely some state secretaries, some ministers, um, but they remain for the most part, even at the height of their power, um, in the second tier. Um, but I think that's not the only way of measuring success. I mean, that's a bit like saying 68, you know, if the left had no impact on Germany until uh, the Red-Green Coalition takes over, and no one's really arguing that. Um, so I do think in the 70s and 80s, they do leave an important um, imprint. And I do think in some ways that the, you know, Cole's success and, 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 and election and sort of 82, 83, um, I do think they play quite a big part in that, even though they are not um, at the forefront. I mean, it's really men like Geisler and Biedenkopf and so forth that are just behind Cole now doing, you know, sort of are the, the, the faces of much of the programmatic work. But in the background, I think they are extremely heavily involved and especially in a lot of the communications work, the party programmatic work and so on. And so I think they do change, help to change, not single-handedly, but they contribute to um, the transformation of the Christian Democrats in the 70s and into the 1980s. And I think the sort of dual formula of a kind of social liberalism to appeal to the changing values of, of the electorate combined with a very combative style, to me, that is kind of their, you know, political characteristic or their brand, as it were. Um, and I do think that works for a while um yeah and then most of them you know get ousted by the late 80s early 90s and then some still you know play a role and run campaigns and, and do things in the background but for the most part they um they retreat from you thank you so before we close the book on this fascinating story that you've written i want to ask uh, a question really for your advice, because I'm sure among our listeners are folks who are contemplating doing oral history, and oral history can easily be done casually, and you weren't casual about the oral history. It was central to your book, and it was systematically and rigorously done. What kind of dangers are there, and how do you, how does one avoid them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that because oral history has been so endlessly critiqued, um, I think that it's actually in some ways um, one of the most methodologically rigorous um, approaches, um, at least, you know, I think by the people I've worked with, I feel like have all really tried to reflect on what they're doing um, with the materials. But of course, there is a danger that you you just sort of buy into the story that you're being told. And, you know, it can be quite... I mean, in some ways, I would have had a much easier job if I had just interviewed um, some of my male protagonists who told me stories about political victory or whatever, and then uh, written that down <laughs> and used Mannheim to uh, to justify that approach. And, uh, you know, maybe it would have been a, a more straightforward uh, book, certainly wouldn't have taken as long to write. Um, 
yeah, so I think I think triangulating is 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 really important, and that's what I try in the book, even though the interviews are central. It is also very, very heavily based on written sources. And I would not have written this book as um, just an oral history. And I think a lot would have would have gone missing. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the women's experiences, I think a lot of the support for the Vietnam War, say, um, wouldn't have been in there. Um, a lot of the ways in which, you know, in the 1970s, these Christian Democrats were really quite illiberal and were denouncing their left-wing op- opponents often in, you know, really problematic ways. And, um you know, lots of other things as well. So I think it's it's important to have other kinds of sources if possible. Obviously, some projects, there's simply no material and the only thing we can get access to are, are interviews. And then, um, then it's a different thing. But I think if possible, obviously checking against um, some written record. And then, um, yeah, I think deconstructing the narratives and really, really questioning um, these sort of biographical illusions that we all have, um, but but being mindful that these are stories that are are constructed and um, having having a critical eye, as it were. And then you also need a lot of time. I mean, obviously, you know, you can set up an interview and do it quickly, but I think the transcription and working with the transcription and all of that is is much more time consuming than many people think. <laughs> so that's something to bear in mind. But I think it's also a tremendous opportunity. I mean, I think I, I the book would have been completely different if it had just been based on um, archival materials. And I think far less interesting and far less colorful. And there's so many things that I found in archives later on because someone pointed out that this happened in an interview. So, you know, it's also, I mean, the whole story with a photograph of Darendorf and Dutschke, the cover that I talked about, I mean, that originally came from an interview and I then tracked it all down, you know, but um, so it's a, I think it's a, it's a tremendous opportunity if you're able to interview people to do it. So unfortunately, we're almost out of time. Uh, if we could close maybe by uh, with, a f- with some reflections or, or a preview of what it is that you're currently working on. Yeah, so I think I'm still um, detoxing in some ways from, from the book. So I'm um, actually writing a few pieces that are still related to this work, but I'm also developing a new idea for a book, um, which in some ways continues some of these themes, certainly the biography, in some ways the the sort of generational story. I became extremely interested in political converts, people who who changed their politics. You mentioned some of the, the renegades that I have in the book who started off as Christian Democrats but ended up on the left. And for my previous work on the left in in the 60s, I also had some people who ended up on the right or who um, very much moved to the center and were sort of liberals. I mean, which is, of course, a story we know quite well. And I want to do something with these kinds of conversion stories, but in Germany in the 20th century as a whole. So the idea is to follow, say, the lives of eight people who cross these kinds of political dividing lines. And I think because, you know, Germany's 20th century is 
is full of political ruptures and people having to adjust to changing political circumstances and in some ways shifting their political stance uh, as well. I think there could be something in, you know, telling these sort of more extreme stories, as it were, um, in the context of this, this broader history that could tell us quite a lot about sort of shared intellectual cultures um, and, yeah, people's experiences of a, a, a century that involved these sort of adjustments um, over time. So that's that's the idea. And I've um, identified a number of people I want to work on and um, I'm sort of in the process of fleshing that out. This sounds absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to see what comes of the work. Uh Anna Vandergoetz has been my guest today. Uh, this is New Books in German Studies. My name's Piotr Kuschitsky. Please buy Anna Vandergoetz's book. It is called The Other 68ers, Student Protest and Christian Democracy in West Germany. It was published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. Anna, thank you again for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me.